Some of you have enjoyed the TV series about Jesus and his followers called The Chosen. I've watched just a few of them. Tara and the girls have gotten into it a little bit more than I have. But I wonder if, if you have seen it, if you've noticed the TV intro to it. It's, it's a whole bunch of fish that are swimming in one particular direction. And then after a bit, here comes another fish swimming in the opposite direction. And it is, of course, Jesus. And then as the intro continues to go on and on, you see another fish turn around and start to follow him. And then another fish turn around and start to follow him. And it goes on and on, one fish after another that begins to follow Jesus. And I think one of the things you quickly think about as you watch that, it is that to follow Jesus, you and I have to be those who will go against the prevailing path. Most everybody's going this way. Jesus is coming this way. And as he has reached out to you and to me in grace and opened our eyes to his goodness and his glory and salvation in him, we turn and we follow him, but it is following him against the prevailing path, the prevailing winds. It is swimming, if you will, upstream. And it implies resistance and opposition that's been the story of the Bible from the very beginning. You know, in chapter 1 of Genesis, God creates all things, creates us in his image on day 6. He rests on day 7. And in chapter 2 is a closer look at the creation of man and the image of God and the creation of woman brought to him. But then in chapter 3 is the introduction of sin into the world and how that breaks mankind's relationship with God breaks man's kind relationship with each other and even with the creation. But just as quickly as sin enters into the world, God promises that one day from the woman will come one who will crush the serpent's head. And along with that promise of a coming redeemer is this idea of opposition and resistance and the word is enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And you really see that played out for the rest of the Bible. Those who trust in God and in his promises and follow him, and those who do not and follow the serpent. There is enmity and opposition and resistance between the two. And it can be demoralizing for God's people. It can be discouraging for God's people. It can be frightening for God's people. And that's what we're going to meet here in Nehemiah chapter 4. We are going to see the people of God about a very, very great work. But it will bring resistance and opposition. And yet we're going to see them push through it, persevere through it. And we'll ask the question, how do they do it? And I see at least five things. So let's read the story quickly and then make our way through it. I'm not so sure I'm going to follow exactly verse by verse. So let's read it, though, in chapter 4. 
Now it came about when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall. You remember chapter 3 last week was all of the people all around the wall rebuilding this wall around Jerusalem. When Sanballat heard of it, he became furious and very angry and mocked the Jews. He spoke in the presence of his brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore it for themselves? Can they offer sacrifices? Can they finish in a day? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was near him, and he said, even if what they're building, if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind or a heart to work. Now when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on, that the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Our enemies also said, they will not know or see until we are among them, come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times or over and over again, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, the exposed places, and I stationed the people and families with their swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his own work. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work, while half of them held spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates, and the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other hand holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. At that time, I also said to the people, let each man with his servants spend the night within Jerusalem so that they may be a guard for us night by night and a laborer by day. So neither I, my brothers, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes. Each took his weapon, even to the water. Seems to me that the enemy has many and various schemes to frustrate our faithfulness to Jesus and to his ministry. I read verse 1, and the thing that just popped into my head earlier this week was from 
Acts chapter 4. Just as quickly as the work began in the book of Acts, Jesus is risen from the dead, spending time with his disciples, giving them final instructions, and then he ascends into heaven. They go to Jerusalem and they wait for the promise of the Spirit. And in chapter 2, the Spirit comes. And now they are empowered to go and preach the gospel. And as they do in chapter 4, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. After the honeymoon period of Acts chapters 1 and 2, where Peter preached and 3,000 believed, soon enough the honeymoon was over and opposition began. Peter and John would be thrown into prison. Eventually all of the apostles would be imprisoned. And here we have in Nehemiah chapter 4, after the honeymoon, if you will, of let's arise and build the end of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3, which is just an incredible story of all of the people gathering together to rebuild the walls. Here comes opposition. It's seemingly ridicule there in the first paragraph, isn't it? He spoke in the presence of his brothers, the wealthy men of Samaria, and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? We learn from chapter 3, some of these folks are perfumers. Um, some of them are daddies with their young daughters. Who are these folks who think they are going to rebuild this wall? These feeble, weak people. Are they going to restore it for themselves? Are they, these perfumers and goldsmiths and priests, are they going to be able to rebuild this wall? Who do they think that they are? Can they offer sacrifices? Some think that phrase means, can they pray it up? I mean, is that, is that what they think they're going to do? Is just talk to their God and it's going to be built? Can they finish in a day? Do they not know how difficult and how long this work is going to be? Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? And then Tobiah joins in. What they're building is so weak and so feeble, even if a fox should jump on it, it's going to crumble to the ground. Being faithful to Jesus can get you and me ridiculed, can't it? What they were trying to do was foolishness in the eyes of Sanballat and Tobiah. What you and I believe, and what we try to do as we serve Christ in his church in the world, can be derided and ridiculed in the world. You and I believe that there is one God who eternally exists as three persons. One God and three persons. And that there are no other gods. All the rest are false. All the rest are idols. You and I believe the gospel that we as humans have sinned against a holy God and that our sin and rebellion against him has separated us from God and put us under the wrath of God, and that that is our destiny unless 
we take hold in faith of God's only provision for man's sin, his son, Jesus Christ. We believe that the Bible is the word of God. That though it was written by human authors, God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, was at work in and through the human authors of the Bible in such a way that what they wrote was the very word of God and that everything that it affirms is true and that it is authoritative for the child of God. We are to believe it and we are to obey it. And to believe what this book teaches to believe what Paul believed and Peter believed and John believed, to believe what Jesus believed and to submit ourselves to the life that it calls us to certainly puts us out of step and headed in a different direction than the prevailing winds of our culture. If we think a little bit more about it, we could think to ourselves, it just sounds ridiculous what you Christians believe. One God in three persons, and that for us and for our salvation, the second person of the Trinity became one of us in the virgin womb of his mother Mary. You're telling me that she was a virgin and she got pregnant and she had a baby who happened to be God, and he lived a perfect life. He never, ever had a lustful thought. He never, ever said a bad word. He never, ever responded in anger. At every turn, you're telling me, every time he did exactly what was right. And then you're saying that he, he died upon a cross and what happened when he died was not just some natural death, but what happened was something very mysterious. The sins of his people were placed upon him and the wrath of God was poured out on him so it doesn't have to be poured out on his people. And you're saying that three days later he rose from the dead like he was dead and he was in the tomb and then three days later he came back to life and then you believe that he ascended like he, he was there in flesh and blood and then he went back up into heaven and you're telling me he's coming back one day? Y'all are ridiculous. And yet that's what we believe. And we come here every Sunday and we sing to a dead man? Of course we don't. But that's what they think. And we give our time to this place and we give our money to this place. What foolish people would take their hard-earned money and give some percentage of it to the church and give every Sunday morning. I mean, your weekends are like precious. And you're going to take one of those mornings you have to sleep in and you're going to come and you're going to sing to a God who does not exist and you're going to write a check and give away your money and then you're going to go watch, you know, teach third graders? You're crazy, right? It's ridiculous. But it's not. Not only is there ridicule, but there's threats. 
down there in verse 8. They conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem, cause a disturbance in it. In verse 11, our enemy said they won't know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. And so there are these threats, and maybe we might could say that being faithful to Jesus not only might get you ridiculed, but it also might cost you. It might cost you your reputation, your friendships, opportunities, promotions, whatever it might be. And, just to keep moving a little bit quicker, the ridicule and the threats, and then maybe the task at hand can lead to discouragement. I think that's what's going on in verse 10. Thus in Judah it was said, so th this is among the people of God who are at work on th the wall. The strength of the burden bearers is failing. Yet there is much rubbish and we ourselves are unable to build the wall. They are dead tired. There is a lot of work to do and there's this growing thought that we're not going to be able to get it done. One said, there is a natural sinking of the heart. These who were so excited and so about the work, maybe through the ridicules, maybe through the growing threats, and then as they just looked around yeah, we've got, it. we've got it going up, but there's so much more to do. I'm so tired. And discouragement sets in. And the enemy has an aim. The, the New American Standard at the end of verse 5 has it. Don't forgive their iniquity. Let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. Other translations, they've thrown insults in the face of the builders. Some, I think even maybe the ESV translates it along the lines that, that, that they have angered you, O Lord. I tend to go with the New American Standard. I don't know why, but I just like the idea that through the ridicule and, and Nehemiah crying out to God on behalf of of the people that, that, that the workers were being demoralized and discouraged in verse 10 and frightened. Verse 14, when I saw their fear, I rose up and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Don't be afraid. The enemy wants to demoralize you and me to suck the spirit and the courage right out of us to take away our hope and our confidence in the Lord, maybe to make us afraid what will happen if we continue to be faithful to Jesus, all with the hopes of convincing you and convincing me to quit. But, praise God, they didn't quit. And I see at least five reasons why, maybe. The first is prayer. So maybe these are various strategies for you and for me uh, to, 
to respond to the enemy's strategies for seeking to discourage us and prevail against us. The first is prayer, right? We see Nehemiah pray in verse 4. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. And he's praying in the great tradition of those, we call them imprecatory psalms. Where God's people ask God to bring his judgment upon those who not only are opposing God, but more than, or God's people, but more than that, opposing God. That they hate the God of Israel and they hate the people of Israel and they are opposed to the people of Israel. And so Nehemiah cries out to God to bring about his righteous judgment upon them. He prays. And down there in verse 9, whenever the, the conspiracy to come together and fight against Jerusalem to cause a disturbance in it, but we prayed to our God. And because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. We've seen prayer over and over again here in the book of Nehemiah. To go back to Acts Whenever Peter and John, Peter preached, 3,000 believed, and in chapter 3, they heal a lame man, and the crowds are coming again, and they're preaching Christ, and then they, the, uh, the, the leaders in Jerusalem arrest Peter and John and bring them in and ask them, in whose name did you do this miracle? And they said, in the name of Jesus, there's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And then they conferred together, what should we do about these guys? Because they're going to fill the whole city with this teaching about Jesus. Well, we can't deny that a great miracle has been done, but maybe what we can do is we can tell them not to preach in the name of Christ anymore and threaten them that if they do, it won't go well for them. And so they came back to Peter and John and they said, you can't preach in this name anymore, and if you do, you're in trouble. And they said, listen... God will have to be the judge. We have to obey him rather than men. And they threatened them further and they let them go. And Peter and John went back to their brothers and sisters and said, let's pray. Let's pray. And let's not pray that God would take away the persecution. Let's pray that God will give us courage in the midst of it. They responded to the threat with prayer just as Nehemiah and the people of God do here. Friends, may God make you and me people of prayer who, who just, just as quickly as Nehemiah, he prays, he prays, he prays. Secondly, they persevere. Love it in verse 6. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind, or your translation might say a heart, to work. They answered with faith and unity and energy to get back to work and to push through. They were so Excited, maybe we might say, to what God had called them to do in the rebuilding of the wall, that the ridicule just went in one ear and out the other as they prayed and persevered through it. Again, in the book of Acts, after they had been arrested and then released and warned, they went and proclaimed Christ again. And they got arrested and 
delivered from that and they went and they proclaimed Christ again and then they got arrested and interrogated and flogged and threatened and released and then they rejoiced and went and proclaimed Christ again that early church in obedience to Jesus no matter what the opposition they just kept going in faithfulness to Christ Some of us might like a great boxing match or maybe an MMA fight. Some of, some of us like that. One, you know, one, one of the great things about those kinds of, is to watch a guy keep getting whacked. I mean, just bang. And what? Keep coming. Just keep persevering even as he's taking shot after shot. One of the great, greatest fighters of all time is known for something, um, you know, it, it's sad. Y'all remember Roberto Duran in 1980 versus Sugar Ray Leonard? What's that fight famous for? Two words, no mas. Duran kept getting hit, and eventually, there's debate, he said, no mas. There's debate as to whether or not he actually said the words. But he'd had enough, and he quit one of the great fighters of all time, but he's remembered for that. And I don't know if this fits, but I just want to share it with you. Last night, Tara and I got a neat little opportunity. We've got friends who pastor a church here in town, Waypoint Church, and they, they do a deal, a great idea. I mean, we need to do it. They, they have a, a, a night out for parents, and they say, hey, come drop your kids off at the church, go out to eat, and then let's all meet together for dessert and we're going to bring in a speaker just to encourage you in your marriage. And so Tara and I last night were the speakers. And we got, they wanted us to share, I think, really about Tara's bout with cancer four years ago, my bout with cancer right now, and some of the things we learned from that. And, 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 and marriage in the midst of that. But one of the things Tara talked about was whenever she got her diagnosis way back in the fall of 2017 and the weightiness of cancer began to push down upon her, how grateful she was to have, if you will, sat in that chair and over there and in Jonesboro, Arkansas and at Denton Bible Church week after 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 week. And to be in a community group for all for the last 20 years. Every week, every other week, sometimes it gets crazy once a month, but, but meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. And to be in fellowship with God's people week after week after week after week. So that when that trial came, there was seemingly strength to persevere. All of the truth that she had learned and all of the prayers that had been prayed and all of the fellowship and the communion with the saints that she had enjoyed
came to bear in that moment. And so I encourage you as I encourage all, as I encourage myself as Tara and I encouraged them last night. What we do as the body of Christ together is a means of grace to help you and me stand when the hardships of life come. They prayed. They persevered. Number three, they acted. They acted. They prayed, but then, but then they worked. Derek Kidner, great Old Testament scholar, on verse 9, but we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. So we prayed, but then we set up a guard. He wrote, the partnership of heaven and earth, so the prayer and the setting up of the guard, of trust and good management, is taken for granted as something normal and harmonious. And the order of precedence between them is no formality, meaning they prayed and then they set up the guard. They, they started with prayer. He says it agrees with the preparation in chapter 1. You remember what chapter 1 was? Nehemiah heard about what's going on and he prayed. It agrees with the preparation in chapter 1 for chapter 2 when Nehemiah went back to Jerusalem and inspected the walls and called the people to the great work. He said it also agrees with the swifter sequence in 2.4. That's when King Artaxerxes said to Nehemiah, what do you want? And so I prayed to the God of heaven and I said. And with verses 4 and 6 in the present chapter. Hear, O our God. And so we built the wall. And he says there will be another instance of it in verse 14. Remember the Lord and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives. And so again, what, what's another strategy for you and for me as we seek to be faithful to Jesus, even in the midst of sometimes opposition, resistance, ridicule, uh, threat of, we pray, we persevere, we act. In life and in ministry, we pray and we act. We pray and we act. We pray and we act. Right? At least that ought to be the way we do it. Some of you maybe are teaching a Sunday school class. And you're thinking on Sunday morning, I got this. And maybe, like I have done, you go into that class in the flesh. I got it. And somebody watching from the outside might think, yep, you got it. And it went great, but the reality is, apart from Christ, you and I can do nothing. And so what we need to do as we go into a class like that is say, Lord, please help me as I teach these kiddos today. Help me to be full of love for them. Help me to be full of encouragement. And as we teach your truth, God, would you just open their eyes to the beauty of the greatness of you and your word and what you have done for them. Lord, may you bear much fruit. And then what do you do? Then you go in there. And you love on those kids and you play with those kids and you encourage those kids and you teach those kids, right? You, you do it. Or if you're a greeter out here on Sunday morning, you come in on Sunday morning and you just pray, God, would you help me to be full of love for everyone who walks through those doors 
and help me to help them feel welcomed here at Redeemer Community Church. And then what do you do? You go set up shop. And when somebody comes walk, you open the door, you smile, you look them in the eyes, you shake their hand, you hug their neck, you do it, you act on it, right? Or, Lord, as I get up to preach this morning, would you fill me with your spirit and help me to be bold and courageous? I pray, God, you help me to be faithful to your word, and I pray you would bear much fruit in the hearts of your people. And then what do you do? You walk the stairs and you come here and give it your best shot. But you pray and you act. Lord, as, we, as, I, as I come to worship on Sunday morning, Lord, would you help me to be loving to my brothers and sisters in Christ? And when we gather to sing, Lord, would you, would you help me to sing from the heart because of your greatness and your goodness? And as we open your word together, Lord, may my ear be attentive to your word. And then what do you do? You, you, you come early on Sunday morning. You come early. So you can be there in the foyer and you can visit with folks and you keep your eye out for new folks, somebody you hadn't met before and you meet them and you introduce them to your friends and then you come in here and you sing from the gut to the glory of God and hopefully you listen to the sermon and you're checking it with the word and we pray and we act, we pray and we act. There's also remembrance Down there in verse 14, when I saw their fear, so the, the, the threat around them apparently was causing some fear. And Nehemiah steps in. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember the Lord. You probably don't remember this, but a long time ago, we did a little series through David, the life of David. And one of the great stories in David's life, of course, is David and Goliath. And Goliath, the Philistine, had come out against the armies of Israel, and everybody in Israel was scared to death. Just as timid as they could be in the face of Goliath. And the Bible says, now David... He gets introduced into the story almost, you know, in the New Testament when we read all the bad news and then the Bible says, but God. Here's all of Israel. They're scared to death. They're so timid. They're frightened. They don't know what to do. Now, David. David spoke to the men who were standing by him saying, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? One of my favorite authors, Dale Ralph Davis, said it like this. David brings a whole new worldview. Doesn't having a living God make a difference in all this? A living God gives a whole new view of things. David's question is not a magic charm for solving every problem. But surely it instructs us. It shows us how crucial it is that we hold the right starting point, that we raise the, excuse me, that we raise the right question at the very first. All the believer's life and all the church's life requires theocentric thinking, God-centered thinking. The tragedy 
as that were someone to hear our thoughts and words and in our dangers and troubles, they would never guess that we had a living God. David pops onto the scene and says, hey, Israel, have you all forgot that we have a living God? In Nehemiah, in the same way, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. We need to pray and persevere and, and appropriately act. We need to remember in our hardships, in our troubles, in the resistance, in the opposition, when we might be demoralized and discouraged and fearful, that our God is great and he reigns and rules over all things. And finally, just constant alertness to the enemy. That's what jumps into my mind in 15 all the way to the bottom. In verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. So they got back to work, but they got back to work differently. From that day on, half my servants carried on the work while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, the breastplates, the captains were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall, those who carried burdens, took their load with one hand doing the work, the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built while the trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, officials, the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive. We're separating the wall from far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. And so there's a sense of watchfulness and vigilance for the enemy. The thought is they're liable to be back at any moment. And as I think about that, you remember in Luke chapter 4, whenever Satan came and tempted Jesus over and over and over again, and Jesus prevailed and prevailed and prevailed again, it says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Praise God, our Savior Jesus never let his guard down. He was always alert to the schemes of the enemy and watched and prayed and was able to prevail. Peter would say it like this to you and me, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time, having cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers and sisters who are in the world. Or Paul, in Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There is a great enemy of the people of God, and his name is Satan, and he leads a host of the demonic realm 
They hate God. They hate the people of God. They hate the word of God and the gospel of God. And according to Paul and to Peter and to Jesus, they would do all that they could to discourage you, to demoralize you, to frighten you and me from faithfulness to Jesus. It's time to go, but I quickly want to show you this. Back in the 1600s, Thomas Brooks wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he did what the Puritans only could do, was he took the idea of Satan and his many schemes and just did this with it. The first section, Satan's Devices to Draw the Soul to Sin. Number one, by presenting the bait and hiding the hook. Number two, by painting sin with virtue's colors. And just listen to these in terms of Satan's schemes to tempt you and me away from Christ. Number three, by the extenuating and lessening of sin. Four, by showing to the soul the best men's sins. And by hiding from the soul their virtues, their sorrows, and their repentance. So the best of men, you see the best of men sin, and that encourages you to sin. But what, what Satan hides from you is that that good man who sinned, he went home and he, and he confessed his sin and he repented before the Lord, and, but we never see that. By presenting God to the soul as one made up of all mercy. Hey, God is just full of mercy. I can do whatever I want. Number six, by persuading the soul that repentance is easy and that therefore the soul need not scruple about sinning. Number seven, by making the soul bold to venture upon the occasion of sin. But eight, by representing to the soul the outward mercies enjoyed by men walking in sin and their freedom from outward miseries. And I work with all these guys. They sin all the time and their life seems great. Number nine, by presenting to the soul the crosses, losses, sorrows, and sufferings that daily attend those who walk in the way of holiness. Number 10, by causing saints to compare themselves and their ways with those reputed to be worse than themselves. Number 11, by polluting the souls and judgments of men with dangerous errors that lead to looseness and wickedness. Number 12, by leading men to choose wicked company. That's just section one. Then section two, Satan's devices to keep souls from holy duties, to hinder souls in holy services, to keep them off from religious performances. Number one. Number two. It's six pages long, six pages of the schemes and devices of the enemy. Let's be alert. Our adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for the body of Christ here at Redeemer that as we seek to joyfully follow you and help others do the same, when we are met with anything that would um, discourage us, demoralize us, frighten us, help us respond in prayer, in perseverance, in action, in remembrance, in constant alertness to the schemes of the enemy. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. To be faithful. And God, might you use us 
in our service to you. As uh, Joey reminded us in his prayer, use us in ways above and beyond what we could imagine. Lord, I pray for those who teach our kids on Sunday morning or Wednesday night. Might they go into those classrooms full of prayer and full of expectation that you are going to do great things as they love those kids and teach them the truth and encourage them and challenge them. Lord, even as our greeters on Sunday morning simply open the door and say hi, so much more is happening in those moments, especially when you are in it. And so may they come with prayer-filled hearts. And the worship team and our community group leaders and all the spots where all of our people are serving and building the wall here at Redeemer, might you use us for your glory and the good of our people And Lord, would you just continually bring to us more and more folks that we can minister to them the love of God and the word of God and the gospel of God. Connect them into the life of our and ministry of our church. That would be wonderful. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.